Today's program has been brought to you by Le Creuset. Visit Le Creuset for cast iron and stainless cookware, bakeware, pots, pans, and kitchen and bar tools. For more information, visit www.lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson. My sometimes co-host, Matt, is on hiatus this week. He is off slaying dragons somewhere. Meanwhile, this is episode 26, and I am very excited uh, to bring on today's show Andrew Grace, a friend of mine who is newly nominated for a James Beard Award for his film Eating Alabama. He'll be on in a bit uh, to talk about that. But first, last week, we talked about the difficulty of finding a foolproof way to peel hard-boiled eggs. And so I called in some expert-level help from a friend of mine, um, and I have him on the line with me, Eli Kaime. Sorry, Eli. He's the chef de cuisine at Per Se in New York City. Hi, chef. Hello. How are you? I'm good, and yourself? I'm excellent. Thank you for taking a minute to explain your method from the top for our listeners, because it came as a total revelation of thinking about hard-boiled eggs uh, at all. So I'll give you a second if you would tell us how you go about doing it in your kitchen. Well, <laughs> we not, it's, not, uh, it's, it's a way that we do it. It's not necessarily the only way that we do it. Um, well, I think who doesn't love a hard-boiled egg? Uh, I, I mean, I do, <laughs> at least. Um, there's always a time when we you hard boil an egg, and for some reason or another, uh, it's tricky to get that skin that uh, shell off and remove all the skin. And you know, we as restaurants, we get into situations where we do large amounts for parties or or for any particular reason. Um, one of the things that we love are deviled eggs. It's a hard boiled egg. You make a mousse out of the yolk and you repipe it back into the white. Um, doing a party for a few hundred people, uh, we wanted to do something consistent and intelligent for us so that it wasn't such a difficult uh, process. So what we, in the end, decided on doing was um, let's recreate the egg. Uh, took the egg and cracked it and separated the yolks from the whites. While it's still raw, right? Before you cook it. While it's raw. Um, you could actually, at this point, um, put all the whites together and season them with, whether it's salt or cayenne pepper or another particular flavor that you'd like, and blend all the whites together. At that point, it's, it's a homogenous liquid. Um, <clears throat> buying a mold or, or making a mold out of... Uh, a plastic container or a plastic wrap. We simply um, poured the whites into the container, very gently steamed them until the, the whites were fully cooked, and then refrigerated them. And then we took the yolks, blended them, and did, did the same exact thing. Um, steamed them in a single bag. I mean, you could do it in a Ziploc bag. Some restaurants have cryovac machines, so you could do it in sous vide. Or you could simply, um, you know, pour it into a Ziploc bag or a piece of plastic wrap, 
cook it until it's fully cooked. Um, and then what we came up with was the ability to have this uh, half of a hard-boiled egg white, which was the the white steamed. And then we took the yolk and blended it after it was hard-boiled and made our mousse. And then basically prepared it exactly like we would if we had a hard-boiled egg. And would you what use we, like a melon baller to like make a little hollow, or do you just pipe the yolk mousse right on top of the the steamed white? Exactly. Well, you could do both ways. What would be nice is to what would be nice is to melon ball a little of the egg white, put a little bit of caviar down, and then that would be hidden where you pipe the yolk on top. But that would almost be a nice little surprise for the person eating the egg. You really don't have to uh, melon ball the surface because it's so flat. It you can pipe right onto it. Um, it works really convenient. I We're love able this. To save hours. I love this because it guarantees that the eggs you know aren't going to get like all ugly when you try to peel them. And you can season the white like you said. That part was a total revelation. My imagination has just gone like I could put lemongrass in, I could put ginger, I could do it, I could do all sorts of stuff. And this time of year, um, because Easter is upon us, you can buy chocolate molds for you know making Easter candies. But the other thing is, you could use any shape you want. You could make them cubes. You could make them stars. And I thought, oh, my, Eli, when you said that, you've really set my imagination on fire, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, imagination's, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, just being creative in general, um, especially with something like an egg, is, is so much fun. Right. Something so simple. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your prep for tonight's service. And um, how, can, uh, how can listeners find out more about you? Um, come visit me at the restaurant. All right. Per se. <laughs> at per se. And you're on Twitter, right? Yes. Awesome. I'm on Twitter and mostly at the restaurant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eli. Next time I'm going to have you come out to Roberta's and I'll buy you a pizza. Sounds good. Thank All right. you. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you could make like like hard-boiled eggs in the shape of like a long rectangle and then flavor them with lemongrass so that when you're eating it, it looks like lemongrass and then you're eating and you could have like little bits of yellow mousse that are flavored differently. I'm really, I, I'm really, my life has been, my life has been changed actually. And I think my life has been changed. I mentioned last week that I had gone out to the chef's garden in Ohio for a fundraising dinner at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And that's where I met Eli and where I accosted him over breakfast the next morning about this egg question. Um, but it was hosted by Farmer Lee Jones, and I want to. I, I recorded a bunch of radio. I got to go there as a member of the press, and I was the only person recording audio, and so I got some interesting sound pieces. And I wanted to play for you the first piece that I've edited together that was sort of an overview of that experience. And I've been taking an informal poll of my friends and food people in general and asking whether or not they know what the Boku's door is. And you've probably heard me say that a couple of times leading up to today. Um, but if you've ever heard of the event and or if uh, not, and the overwhelming reaction is the Boku's what? Uh, no. And this totally amazes me. Um, the story that I'm about to play for you will give you an overview, but in a nutshell, Chef Philippe Tessier of the French Laundry is going to go to Lyon, France in January of 2015 to represent the United States in the most elite culinary competition in the world. 
And the team that's supporting him is a culinary star-studded group who are trying to get him and all of us Americans by extension onto the podium for the very first time. And so we all just watched ice dancing and curling with rapt attention for two weeks in Sochi. And this is a two-day cooking competition where each chef cooks for five days, but because there's so many chefs that... The uh, competition itself takes place over two days. But for five hours, we watch the most elite chefs in the world compete on this on this international stage where some countries bring like marching bands and people paint their faces and scream in a stadium environment. And it's unlike anything we see on American television. And I could watch someone like I could watch someone competitively competitively change oil if they were like the best oil changer in the world. Like I love watching that level of focus and discipline um, on on display, and I I really get into it. So I'm going to play this piece for you, and then um, after that we'll have a break and we'll bring Andy on. In the middle of March, Chicago hosted the 36th annual conference for the International Association of Culinary Professionals. Many of you know that because you might have been at IACP for the festivities. What you may not know is 300 miles away across the wrist of Michigan, the Culinary Vegetable Institute at the Chef's Garden in Milan, Ohio, that's Milan, not Milan, was hosting the best chefs working today in the United States. The purpose? A fundraising dinner for Team USA to compete at Boku's Door in January 2015. Held every two years in Lyon, France, Boku's Door showcases the world's culinary talents in what insiders call the Culinary Olympics. In 2015, Team USA will compete for a place on the podium and a coveted gold medal. Like football, rather American soccer, Team USA has trained in relative obscurity in a country obsessed with competitive culinary television like Chopped on Bravo and the Food Network's Cutthroat Kitchen. And, like the United States Soccer Federation, the not-for-profit Boku's Door USA Foundation is working tirelessly to raise the profile of these culinary talents. I'll let Executive Director Young Yoon give you some background. My name is Young Yoon. Y-O-U-N-G is the first name. Y-U-N is the last name. I'm an Executive Director for the Boku's Door USA Foundation. Um, it's a foundation that was started about six years ago by chefs Thomas Keller, Danielle Ballou, and Jerome Bocuse. And really the mission of the foundation is all about inspiring culinary excellence. And so one of the key ways in which we sort of help to showcase what that means is by training and supporting the Team USA that goes and competes at the Bocuse Door competition that takes place in Lyon every other year. Take this dinner, for instance. Eight chefs from around the country are preparing an eight-course meal. Among them, Chef Eli Kaime of Per Se, widely considered among the best restaurants in the world, Jamie Simpson, chef liaison here at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, a world-traveled and trained wunderkind, Gavin Kaysen, 2007 USA competitor at Boku's Door and executive chef of Café Boulou in New York, as well as head coach for Team USA, and Philippe Tessier, executive sous chef at the French Laundry and Team USA's captain for 2015. Here's Chef Jennifer Petruski, the rare woman, describing her course. The bowl I'm looking into is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. It's colorful and precise, a variety of days-old microgreens, a knotted piece of baby garlic with its scape and roots still attached. The bowl itself, from sponsor Steelite's Simplicity Collection, is elegantly proportioned and sprinkled with tiny bits of puffed grains and a red dusting of pimentone on the rim. So this is going to be the... I have a garlic soup. 
with uh, my Vertical ham. So it's a take on um, springtime. Okay. You know, so I have like spring garlic and then I a twist on the traditional garlic soup. It's more, it's lighter, so it's not as like winter focused. It's like us shifting into spring and all the bounty of it. And then also like seeds and sprouts and grains that have been puffed or toasted or just to represent like what the Iberica, what the ham, what the pig would actually eat you know, in itself as well. So like springtime, full circle. Chef Jonathan Sawyer describes his contribution to the waitstaff. His hors d'oeuvres will start the meal. So the idea is that we take this duck stew, this Italian duck stew, um, and we make the stew all the way through, and then we essentially throw away all the salads. We take everything and we put it in a press, and we press out all the liquid. Uh, so not like a traditional jelly where it's like bones and water, it's actually whole duck, neck, feet, head, everything except for the liver braised with uh, tomato pince and onions and all sorts of crazy things. And then we smush all the jus out of that, and then there's enough gelatin to set it up as is. And then on top of that, we put a little piece of uh, foie gras that uh, we made pretty smooth and edible gold leaf over top of it. So very luxurious um, feeling and also in your mouth because of all the collagen and all the gelatin inside of the jelly. It just sort of sits on there for a while. and It changes as you eat it too because initially you get the foie gras and then eventually you get the braised duck flavor. So I liken it to the uh, to the four-course meal chewing gum from Willy Wonka. The guests arrive, we dine and imbibe with Master of Ceremonies Farmer Lee Jones at the helm and raise many thousands of dollars in support of this opportunity to put the United States on the podium for the first time ever. I asked Chef Philip Tessier, our hope for a 2015 medal, what the best thing for raising the profile of the competition in the eyes of competition-loving American foodies would be. People like to watch something you're going to win. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I think the greatest thing we can do for the whole competition in the U.S. is to So in other words, no pressure. For more information about Boku's Door Team USA, visit bokusdoorusa.org. That's B-O-C-U-S-E-D-O-R-U-S-A dot org. For pictures of the event and the exquisite food, search Twitter and Instagram for hashtag BDO at CVI and hashtag Road to Lyon. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm Emily Peterson. brought to you by the generous support of Le Creuset. Respect for tradition and authenticity has been Le Creuset's guiding principle since 1925, yet their innovative designs and exceptional quality ensure that they remain relevant today. The company began in 1925 when a casting specialist and an enameling expert opened their foundries at the crossroads of transportation routes for iron, coke, and sand. That same year, the first French oven was produced, laying the foundation for what is now an extensive range of cookware and kitchen utensils. Today, Le Creuset provides the finest quality stainless steel, stoneware, silicon, enamel on steel, textiles, and forge hard anodized aluminum, as well as the colorful line of cast iron cookware. 
Visit LeCruze.com and shop the full line of cookware, stoneware, bakeware, kitchen tools, wine accessories, and more. Heritage Radio Network thanks Le Creuset for their generous support. I must confess, I'm not much of a hunter. So why am I here in this freezing cold shack trying to kill a deer? Well, it's kind of a long story. A story about food. Not too long ago, my wife Rashmi and I moved back to our home state of Alabama. And even though both our families were steeped in agriculture, we didn't know a single farmer. So we decided to do something bold, to try and eat only locally grown food. This is a battle of will. Our friends joined us too, and we started by doing some research. Is that the only vegetable they grow is beets? Then we hit the road, visiting farms and meeting people all across the state. Look at this, man. This is where all of our local food lives. I told you they were dusting it. <laughs> Back then, the people understood, oh, a yard egg is a good egg, and it's different than a commercial egg. Now people don't know that stuff. It's like that information got lost. Everything grew on the farm, so you just lived off what you had. We have cold cheeseburgers and turnips. Oh, y'all brought your own food. Too good for us. We learned to can. We blew the chaff off fresh wheat. We're blowing this chaff, baby. And we spent hours putting up food for the winter. <laughs> this takes forever. It's taking far more energy to actually do this than I'll get out of any nutritional value of this corn. And each time we ate together, we felt like we were finding something that had been lost. It's really impressive. It's beautiful. But soon, this became more than a story about eating local food. It became a story about change, about the environment, and the economy and about the lives of the people who grow our food. We hear that global market all the time, and it's just a lot more complicated than it used to be, seems like. <laughs> it just costs so much money. A young person could not afford a farm. You can't start from zero, as I did, and go up anymore. But it's also a story about community, about family, and about getting to know the place you're from. It's a story about why food matters, and it's called Eating Alabama. Now, that really cut down on the transportation and delivery costs. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson. And on the line with me all the way from Alabama is Andrew Grace, filmmaker of Eating Alabama, which is the trailer that we just played for you, and the newly minted James Beard Award nominee for that film. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I have to tell everyone that we um, have mutual friends in your, in my husband and his sister, Jessica, but you and I have never actually met, right? No, no. I've heard much about you, though, and all your your culinary exploits over the years. <laughs> and I, you, every time you post something on Facebook, my husband's like, oh, you and Andy really have to be friends. So I'm happy to introduce you to the world of my listeners and to meet you for the first time, even if only via the telephone. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I've, I've spent time with your, with Mark, of course, and also with your parents, too. So I feel like I know you through that. With yeah. Mark's parents, that is, so, yeah. So I just love this film, and that's sort of a good segue when you talk about um, family and getting to know the place that you're from. And I'm wondering if you could tell me what were some of the moments, or if there was a singular moment in your life as an eater where you paused and thought, this is wrong, 
And that what was what set you off on the course of eating Alabama? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if there's a single moment. I think it was just an attrition of things, like a lot of a lot of us who have sort of found the food movement, I guess, in the last 10 or so years. I think it was just a realization that I had somehow gotten completely disconnected from everything about food, about where it's grown, about how it's raised, about how it's made. I mean, everything about it, really. Um, I mean, my mom was a cook growing up. I mean, she cooked a lot of meals at home, but it was also the era of the, of the Southern Living Cookbook where nearly everything was some kind of Campbell's Soup-based concoction, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was good. I mean, it was much better than eating fast food, but it was still a kind of disconnected, highly processed world of food that I grew up in. Uh, and that, that, for a long time, for most of our history in this country, was a good thing to go toward those processes uh, and to get away from that manual labor for, for working people especially. But I definitely think that we reached this really significant tipping point where it's no longer a good thing that we live the disconnected way we live. And I think the process of making eating Alabama was, was a sort of slow discovery of, of all these kind of unintended consequences of the way our food system had changed. And you have this excellent scene in the movie where you're um, rototilling your front lawn. What did your neighbors think? Well, they were, I mean, I live in kind of a, we live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I teach at the University of Alabama. And so we live in kind of a college neighborhood. So I, in a way, I think they were probably glad that we weren't parking, you know, a big SUV on our front yard, <laughs> which is what some of our other neighbors do. But we did have one neighbor who came over and said, well, don't you have a garden in the back? Like, why are you doing this in the front of your house? But fortunately, you know, we had beautiful sunflowers and lots of things that made it very pretty. So I think people got over it pretty quickly, and people would constantly stop and talk with us about it. And I, I mean, I think just the visibility of having a front yard garden is a great step toward educating your neighbors and and not even educating your neighbors in some kind of paternalistic way, but just, you know, having a visible sign of food production in your in your neighborhood, which, you know, a lot of neighbors don't have any of that anymore. And you were really pragmatic about it, too. There, uh, you t- I, I'm almost positive you talk about this in the movie. Or I know I heard about it through Mark and Jessica, though, that you that there were some rules, like you were going to have coffee and tea, right? Yeah, we, we had, actually had tea, but we did have some exceptions. I mean, we had exceptions for things like, leavening agents and limited number of spices and uh, just things that, you know, were more kind of staples, dry goods staples that lasted for a long time. I mean, I was not so interested in going this kind of really absurd 100-mile diet route that a lot of people have gone where they go to the coast and get their salt, you know what I mean? I just, that, that was not, I wasn't interested in that. What I was interested in doing is trying to, as much as possible, sort of recreate the way that our grandparents ate when they lived on the farm to, you know, one, two, three generations ago. Um, and so what they would have done is they would have gone to the dry goods store to buy certain things, you know, a couple times a season. But mostly what they ate was out of their food shed, out of their, what they were growing, what their neighbors were growing. So that was kind of the intention. Um, and then once you start cooking, say, a lot of pork, you realize that, especially in the South, that basically good pork fat is essentially the olive oil of the deep South, you know. Right. So you I, just yeah. learn to kind of work with what you've got. So. I have a pint of uh, render leaf lard in my refrigerator, and I use it all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once I you mean, start using it, it, you realize how delicious it is, and wonder like, why isn't? Where is all the lard going? Why isn't everyone using this? I know. I just remember for years we'd cook bacon and throw the grease up. Now I think back on that, I was thinking, what or what were we doing? You know. Right. Yeah. And then to hear even stories of my mom when she was growing up, they always had a can of grease uh, right by the stove, and her mother used it all the time for everything. But that, you know, my mom just sort of turn her nose out of that as, as, as 
<laughs> don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a reason to turn your nose up at it. <laughs> I think if, it, if it's overdone, like it is oftentimes in the South, but, but it was just something I never even realized was possible or, or even part of the culinary tradition here, you know, because we got so quickly so, so far away from those traditions. And the, the film follows sort of an arc of learning on your part, too, because you, you, in the trailer you say, we've got cold burgers and turnips or whatever. <laughs> and I think that yeah. that's like a, something that puts people off. Like, what, are, what would you eat in March or in February? Yeah, well, actually, it's funny. I, I didn't say it there for some reason, but actually, it was venison burgers that we were having. So <laughs> it was really like the dregs. You know, I mean, not the dregs. Venison burgers are great, but it was it was even more specific than just burgers. <laughs> but we did. I mean, we would eat a lot of meat during the winter, and, and still do really. I mean, we're we're not hardcore like we were during the making of the film, but we still really eat seasonally and, and eat really out of the farmer's market as much as we can. So during the winter, we find ourselves eating just a lot more meat than we do during the summer when there's so many. So much produce to be had. So yeah, we would just eat a lot of uh, a lot of meats, a lot of um, root vegetables, storage vegetables. You know things like turnips and sweet potatoes and collards that grow pretty well in the cold here in Alabama. So a lot of greens. So yeah, I mean it, it, your your seasonal diet in Alabama is is actually pretty varied if you can find the farmers growing the food around where you live. You know. Have has you are have you influenced what farmers are growing? Like, do you think that there's going to be a change so that it's not all corn and soybeans? I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that we've done that by any means. I think that as the as the kind of food movement grows, and I mean, the movie is was not a catalyst for change. I think more than anything, it was just part of this larger conversation that's been happening. So, uh, but yeah, I think that with more consumer demand for for different crops and and a market, I mean. The, Really, when we started this project, or maybe not even, I guess, coinciding with us starting this project, there were more and more markets. There were more farmers' markets in Alabama. You know, five or six years before that, when I really first started thinking about food issues, there was really not markets to speak of in the in the rural South, and or even in the urban South, for that matter. Just much in the same way that there wasn't in for other urban centers either. I mean, really, the onslaught of all these farmers' markets has been in the last 10 or 12 years. I think it's before that, farmers just went for whatever they could sell, you know, and so commodity farming is, is a way to have a consistent income because of all the built-in insurance things and, and subsidies and everything. Uh, and the idea of growing vegetables, which is pretty difficult work and is very, uh, very much about human labor as opposed to mechanized labor, was just completely unappealing to farmers. But now I think they look out and they see friends of ours and colleagues and people here in Alabama that are that are changing their, their production methods and going back to small-scale organic agriculture, and they think... Well, actually, they are able to make money doing that, and the subsidies market doesn't look quite as appealing as it once did. So I do hope that, that there will be a change in that way. But those folks who farm 1,500 acres and use GPS-guided tractors, I mean, they, they really have no interest in, in doing 10 acres in organic agriculture. I right. really think it's the children of those farmers who are really going to make the change. And then young people who don't have any farming background at all, who are just really passionate about food and really interested in sustainable living and, and these other issues that uh, I think a lot of people in our generation are, are getting kind of turned on to. So I think I think those are the folks who are going to make the change. How did you find out you were nominated for the award? Um, I was actually meeting with a student, and my phone just kept buzzing, and I don't, my phone doesn't very often buzz like that, and I realized that all these people were tweeting at me and doing various things that was going on <laughs> phone to vibrate. So I was like, oh, well, I guess that happens. But then I had to turn my phone off and get back to meeting with my student. You know? That's so, yeah, very exciting. 
Uh, well, we're, yeah. we're super excited for you. How would um, people go about watching the movie? Well, you can go to our website and, uh, and buy a copy of the DVD or Blu-ray, but it's also available on iTunes or Amazon or Vudu. There's a whole bunch of digital platforms that, are, that, that have the movie. Um, so, yeah, either one of those ways. If you want a physical copy, you can order it from our website, and if you want to watch it uh, digitally, then you can get it from one of the many purveyors of, of films these days. That is awesome. That's eatingalabama.com, right? Mm-hmm. All right, and good luck, and we will be thinking of you on May 5th, right? Do you get to go to the big event at Lincoln Center? Yeah, we still haven't decided whether or not we're going to be able to go. I actually have a park commitment that, uh, here in Alabama with a, an artisan market, so I kind of feel a little bit a little bit like we should we should do that instead. It's uh, keeping with our kind of local aesthetic. <laughs> so we'll see. We're still on the fence a little bit, but it would be a wonderful opportunity, and we're very excited anxious and excited about it. All right. Well, if you make it up this way, I'd love to meet you in person. Oh, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, and you're, and watch me, too. I, yeah. I, well, we, we have kids about the same age, and you've got a boat, I heard. So that's, a, that's yeah. very enticing. And Auntie Jessica yeah. wants us to come anytime. She's got an open door for us. Yeah, well, we'd love to see you. We'll cook you a big meal. Awesome. All right, Andy, I'll be thinking about you. Thanks so much for coming on, and uh, well, I'll be in touch soon. Thanks for having me. Roll Tide. All right, Roll Tide. Listeners, for you who don't know Roll Tide, that is for the uh, Crimson Tide, University of Alabama's football team, which is a sport ball that I got into because it gives me an excuse to sit down on Sunday afternoons and eat some barbecue pork nachos. And if it requires having a football game on, then that if that's what it takes, then I will watch it. On next week's show, Paul Lowe, author of Sweet Paul, Eat and Make, the man behind Sweet Paul magazine, will be in the studio with me here at Roberta's talking about his new book. And if you go over to sharpandhot.com, I posted a link to my friend John Sconza's Flickr page so that you can see pictures of the chefs and the amazing food that they prepared at that dinner, along with a link to Eating Alabama and the Chef's Garden and the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And uh, before I let you go, I have to say uh, on Sunday night, this Sunday night at 10 p.m., I will be competing on Cutthroat Kitchen, hosted by Alton Brown on the Food Network. Head over to facebook.com forward slash sharp and hot. I created an event so that you can join and tell me that you will be watching. I will be on my couch in my pajamas with a glass of red wine, live tweeting during the show. And I have to admit that as the date approaches, I'm getting kind of nervous. Like just talking about this, I'm feeling a little nervous. Um, but meanwhile, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Emily, Emily P. If you like what you hear, head over to iTunes and leave a review, would you? When new people are deciding whether or not to listen to the show, the number one reason that they do is because of positive feedback from listeners like you and know that I get them and I read them and I truly appreciate it. So thank you. And a big thanks to the Culinary Vegetable Institute, the Chef's Garden, Boku Store, Team USA, even though I botched your email, your web address, Farmer Lee Jones, John Sconzo and Steelite USA. Until next week, thank you for listening and keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.